Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year, producing a balanced budget, not just for football, and saving on travel because spending less on airfares means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancy dinner too. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast on your favourite podcast app. Future you will thank you. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast part of the 90 Min Football Network. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simiu, and on this edition of the show, we're going to be discussing the fact that Arsenal are top of the league, but why we need to keep calm at this stage. I think that's really, really important. I'm not saying don't enjoy it. I'm not saying don't make the most of it. What I am saying, though, is be realistic about where Arsenal can end up this season. I'm going to talk about some of the things that we noticed in the game against Bournemouth. We're going to talk about some of the new players, of course. Uh, A little bit of an extension here to our review show of the Bournemouth game. We're also uh, going to be discussing some of the rest of the Premier League results because there were some very interesting results over the weekend. And... um, you know, when, when kind of assessing what Arsenal can achieve, where Arsenal might end up, where Arsenal might finish, I think you do need to take into consideration the state of play with some of the other clubs. Some of the clubs that people will have said would be direct competition with us. You have to talk about what might still happen in the transfer window. For example, I'll give you an example. I think that Chelsea will be in better shape by the time the transfer window closes. And so maybe... We shouldn't read too much into what their start to the season has looked like. And I would say, surely, Manchester United are going to look better than they currently do. But there have been some clubs outside of that, your Leicester Cities, your West Ham Uniteds, who at the time of recording have done some business, particularly in West Ham's case. But is it enough? Not sure. And we'll be talking about the situations, as I say, at some of those clubs as well. But let's start with uh, the most important club of them all, the mighty Arsenal, who won at Bournemouth by three goals to nil. Talked about it on the post-match podcast. Arsenal winning their first three games of the season for the first time since 2004-2005. Now, this is the first time in a long time where we've had decent fixtures. We've always had a Chelsea, a City, a Liverpool, or someone like that in the first few games. And that has obviously made it very difficult to achieve what we've achieved this time around. But the fixtures were kind to us. And with Fulham to come at home at the weekend and some other winnable fixtures in between that, of course, and Manchester United, I feel like it's really important that Arsenal keep up this momentum and that Arsenal go on and take maximum points so that when that difficult period inevitably comes along, not too much is damage not too much damage i beg your pardon is done in terms of keeping pace with our rivals in terms of um making sure we're right up where we want to be come the business end of the season i say keeping pace with everybody but we're top of the league at the time of recording what more could you want than that it's them that have to keep pace with us but look jokes aside i know that arsenal are not title challengers this season 
I've seen a lot of improvement. I've seen a lot of things to be encouraged by. I've seen some brilliant signings come in and have an instant impact. I've seen William Saliba come in from the cold and really add something to that Arsenal backline and take it up a whole nother level. But I'm not naive enough to think that, you know, having beaten Crystal Palace and then Leicester at home, followed by Bournemouth, who many people think will go down, is enough to suggest that Arsenal can mix it with Liverpool and Manchester City, can challenge for the title until the very late stages. But I have seen enough to suggest and to encourage me that actually Arsenal could finish in the top four this season. And it kind of, what you've seen at the start of the season is kind of proved the theory right that I kept saying last season. I remember when we were talking about Arsenal missing out on the Champions League. I remember when we were talking about the fact that, you know, should we, shouldn't we go spend big money in January? Should we do what we think is necessary, even if it means spending a bit extra, even if it means diverting away from the plan just a little bit in order to try and capitalise on an opportunity that presented itself? And there's no getting away from it. It was an opportunity. There was an opportunity for Arsenal to finish in the top four, despite Arsenal not being very good, or at least not at the level that they are at today. You know, the additions have made a big difference. The players that we had are getting better. The manager is getting better. The mood, the feel-good factor around the club is visibly better. But there was an opportunity last season, and we unfortunately didn't take advantage of it. But the kind of narrative around that period was, well, if Arsenal don't get top four this season, they never will. But then you get a Manchester United, who people thought would be back in the mix, really, really struggling. You get a Chelsea, who have been a bit up and down at the start of the season. Some people were talking about Leicester City as a side that could potentially finish above us if we didn't get our acts together in the transfer market. They've been awful. And there are rumours that Brendan Rodgers might not even be there all that much longer. He might even be sacked by the time you're listening to this, based on some of the things I've been reading today. West Ham United were another club that people talked about as having the potential to finish above us if we weren't quite at it. And West Ham United have also started the season terribly, have made some really big money signings that haven't had the impact yet. I know it's early days, but if they get off to a bad start, they could fall behind as well. So the point I'm trying to make here is that you can't keep obsessing over other teams. And if I had a pound for every time I said that last season, I'd be a millionaire right now. You focus on yourselves. You focus on the job in hand. You focus on improving. And there are so many ups and downs in the Premier League. There are so many teams capable of beating each other that you will get the opportunity as long as your level of consistency and as long as your level of performance is where it needs to be. So, you know, there's no reason why we can't finish in the top four this season. And the start to the season only gives us encouragement and more optimism. But there's a there's a, there's a a kind of middle ground here where the optimism and the hope and the positivity, it can get out of control and it can lead you down a path whereby you're moving away from realism. And the realism is that Arsenal should be aiming to finish in the top four. That's got to be the aim at the start of the season. Anything more than that is a bonus. Maybe that objective will change and adapt over the course of the season, as ours did last season, when it became apparent that we could, if we kept it together, finish in the top four. But at this point, it's still too early. And Mikel Arteta has alluded 
to that point as well. He said it's only three games. We've scored goals. We've looked good, but it is only three games. And I don't. I'm not saying don't enjoy it. I'm not saying don't make the most of it. I'm not saying don't enjoy the ride. We absolutely should, but always at the same time there needs to be that level of realism. You need to have that realism. You need to have almost that center point in your kind of opinion that you revert back to. You know, don't get too high. Don't get too low. Be realistic. And that's what I want to encourage Arsenal fans to do. The atmosphere is great. Everybody's together. Everybody's behind the team. And you really feel that when you're in the stadium now, perhaps more than in the last 15, 18 years, if we're being completely honest. But let's see where we're going to be um, come the business end of the season, because there are going to be lots of ups and downs between now and then. And of course, you throw in the unpredictability that comes with having a World Cup slap bang in the middle of the season. That could do anything too. you know, you could send your players out on international duty. You could lose two key players at the World Cup. The flip side is you could spot a talent at the World Cup that you think would add and enhance the squad and go and get him in January. And that might give you the boost that you need. You can have a player that maybe isn't quite performing at the level required, but goes to the World Cup and delivers and builds confidence and comes back a totally different animal. There are lots of factors. It could be positive. It could be negative. It can go both ways. But there is a lot of unpredictability about any Premier League season, let alone this one, where we're going to be stopping for a World Cup to take place and then returning back. So just keep calm. Fuck it. We're going to win the league. What am I talking about? <laughs> just joking. Let, as I say, keep that level of balance and um, and we'll be fine. Just enjoy the ride. Take one game at a time. Um, that's all we can do at this moment in time. It is early days, but there are really, really positive signs. I love the way that Saliba has slotted into the back line. I think he's done a great, great job. Um you know, he's come in and he's uh, he's uh, slotted in as though he's been there all his life, which is amazing. You look at what Zinchenko's done, slotting in at left back, somebody who has added another dimension to our game, in my opinion. You know, Kieran Tini's great. There's no question about that. He's a superb defender. But Zinchenko just brings more variety more unpredictability, more balance and more dynamism to the attack because of what I keep talking about, the fact that he's able to step inside and become part of the midfield and add numbers there and help us to overload teams, help us to control the game. But he's also, being left-footed and very good in attacking positions, able to go on the outside of the winger. He's able to release the shackles off of whoever plays in that left-central midfield position more often than not Granit Xhaka. He brings a lot more layers to this team than maybe Kiarantini does. However, having said that, the flip side, I've said this before, if I was to come up against a top-class winger who was going to pin us back and we weren't going to have it all our own way and we weren't going to control possession in the way we'd like, then I'd prefer Kiarantini to be the man tasked with dealing with whoever that might be. But we have that choice now. We have that depth, a level of depth that we just didn't have before. And with every acquisition we're making, you feel confident. You feel confident that the right people are in the right places and they're signing the right players to come in and take this team to the next level. There's so, so much to be positive and optimistic about. Um, Sko says, there's no point if you don't enjoy it. There's no point. Even you said that before, Harry. Absolutely. And I keep reiterating the point. You have to enjoy 
the fact that we're top of the league. You have to wind up all your mates. You have to be in your WhatsApp chats, posting pictures of the Premier League table at least three, four times a day. You have to do all of that. But that doesn't mean that within your own mind, you can't stay grounded at this point where there is still a lot of work to do. There are going to be a lot of twists. There are going to be a lot of turns. And we've learned that over the years that football isn't all plain sailing. It doesn't always go the way you'd like it to go. There can be factors that play a part that are completely and utterly outside of your control. Injuries, suspensions off the back of bad decisions, penalty awards. There are so many things that can go against you in football that you can't ever get complacent and you can't ever get carried away. It's simply the nature of the sport. But the early signs are really, really encouraging. And that result at Bournemouth was um, more so the performance in that first half, I thought, than the result was, was super impressive. We were ruthless. We started the game well. I keep talking about the importance of Arsenal getting off to good starts and strong starts in games and what that can do sometimes from a mental standpoint to sides that are less superior, to sides that are expected to be in the bottom half of the table, bring that inferiority complex that lives in the back of their minds, bring it to the front of their minds, exploit it, play on it. Get off to strong starts and you unsettle people. You don't let people find their own rhythm, their own flow, and you stand a much greater chance from those leading positions to go on and clear out games. And the reason Arsenal are much better at doing that is because not only have we improved dramatically as a defensive unit with William Saliba, Ben White playing well, Gabriel playing well, you know, with a, a better keeper than we've had in previous years and, and a good left back, whether it's Inchenko or Tierney, but we've got a lot more structure to our team and we offer a threat in behind. We can pick teams off on the counter-attack. We can set those traps to lure people in and then go a little bit more direct if we want to because we've got a forward in Gabriel Jesus who proved that Bournemouth, he can take balls out of the air, spin and get you going. He can also run in behind, as can Martinelli, as can Saka. There's so much to be positive about right now. And of course, today, Arsenal are being heavily linked once again with a move for the Portuguese winger Pedro Neto from Wolverhampton Wanderers. Is this going to happen? I shared my thoughts on the last episode of the podcast in which I raised a couple of points about Pedro Neto that I believe should be seen as classed as red flags. Again, doesn't mean that I wouldn't sign him. Doesn't mean that I wouldn't take advantage of the opportunity if it were to present itself. But there's certainly things you need to consider. And if you want a little bit more uh, in-depth um, sort of analysis or I say analysis, my thoughts on Pedro Neto, then please do check out that previous episode and leave your thoughts in the comment section. But again, we can talk about Pedro Neto. Will he be a good fit? Is he a good fit? The, the, the problem here is, is this a deal that we can get done from a financial standpoint? Talk Sport are reporting that Wolves want in excess of 50 million. Graham Bailey at 90 min says that Arsenal could do that for cheaper, that they could get the deal done. And there could be some sort of agreement that means Arsenal pay, I don't know, 40 million plus 10 million in add-ons over a period of time. He, he didn't say that that's what's going to happen, but he suggested that that would be a possibility. And when I said that he may cost 50 million, he said that he believes that Wolves may be more open to letting him go for less than that. Now, Wolves are in talks uh, for Kaladzic, the Stuttgart forward today as well, which could impact on this. Do Wolves 
need to raise funds for him. Remember, they've got Gonzalo Guedes. They've got Daniel Pedence. They've got a lot of quality players that can operate from those wide areas. But one of the problems for them over the last couple of seasons has been when Raul Jimenez is not fit and not available, they don't have another striker who can come in and fill that void. And so Kaladzic feels like somebody that Wolves will be trying very, very hard to get. I think he's a big lad, if I'm not mistaken. I think I read earlier on that he's six foot seven and somebody that gives him that physical presence and with a pretty good goal scoring record as well. But yeah, Arsenal sit pretty at the top of the Premier League, but more than just the results, it's the performances that have given me encouragement. And that's kind of a nice segue onto some of the results that we're going to talk about now, because I've watched some of the other teams, some of the teams that we're supposed to be competing with, and I haven't been massively impressed by their performances. We'll start with the early game on Saturday, which was Spurs against Wolves. Particularly in the first half, I thought Wolves were by far the better side. I really, really did. And people will say, you know, you're an Arsenal fan, you're biased. You can't possibly watch a Spurs game and give a, uh, you know, a, a reasonable, fair assessment of their performance, but they weren't very good. They simply weren't very good. They didn't control the game. Wolves had long periods of possession and were just missing that killer instinct up front or maybe just missing that focal point in attack. We saw uh, Guedes sometimes drift into that central space. We saw Pedence do it. We saw Wolves have to get creative because of Raul Jimenez's fitness not quite being where it needed to be. He did come on in the second half, but, um, you know, it, he wasn't ready to start from the beginning and and that impacted Wolves, I think, at a time when they were on top in the game. But Spurs have this knack lately under Antonio Conte of getting over the line. And where does that come from? Where well, it comes from the fact that they've got a really solid defensive system. On paper, it's not great. I still don't particularly rate players like Eric Dyer or Davinson Sanchez, who had to play because of Christian Romero's injury, or even Ben Davis at left centre-back. But in that system, there is strength. In that unit, there is strength. And as a defence, they're very difficult to break down. And you could see that they were quite happy to allow Wolves to have the ball in wide areas and almost force Wolves, force Wolves, Wolves into a position whereby they had to put crosses into the penalty area. And that's what a three-pronged central defence loves. That's what they want. They want to deal with it, particularly the likes of Eric Dyer and Davinson Sanchez. They don't want you picking up the ball and running at them. They don't want you spinning them. They want those balls that they're facing to come into the penalty area so that they can deal with them. And to a degree, you end up playing into their hands, even if you don't want to, even if you don't intend to, just simply because there is no space in the middle of the park to hurt them. So Spurs' performance wasn't particularly impressive, but as we've said time and time again, as we said at the back end of last season, they've got Harry Kane, they've got Heung-Min Son, and those two world-class forwards are capable of dragging them over the line whenever they need it. Ivan Perisic was pretty good in the second half as well for Spurs, and it was his flick on, I think, at the near post that found Harry Kane, who had just pulled off his man, and he was able to head in from a couple of yards out. Easy goal, easiest goal he'll probably score in his entire career. Um, but you know, he was there. He was in the right position at the right time. And, and that's what good strikers do. And Spurs have that. It's undeniable. So even though I don't think they're great in other areas, I think they have the basis of a solid team 
And then they have quality players in the forward areas that can impact games. And that's why I guess people are so worried about them. But based on their performances so far, I thought they were dreadful at Chelsea. Really poor, second best by a long, long way. And but for some questionable refereeing decisions, they'd have been beaten. I think they were good against Southampton in the opening weekend, but there were moments where Southampton got at them. So that didn't really convince me about them. And then, of course, there was this game where, as I say, for large periods, Wolves were certainly the better side. Tottenham won't care. Antonio Conte won't care. You ideally want your team to pick up points, pick up results, as they have done, and then peak a little bit later on in the season. So they won't be worried about that, and I'm not saying they should be. But I haven't watched them yet and gone, wow, this is a force. In the way that people have watched Arsenal and gone, you know what, this team is serious this year. Moving on to some of the other results, Crystal Palace uh, got a victory over Aston Villa. Delighted for them. Really, really am because they were good value against Arsenal. I thought in the second half they were very good. They ended up losing that game by two goals to nil. They went to Anfield and got a draw when they'll probably feel like they could have got more. Um, so then to get off the mark with their first victory at home to an Aston Villa side that I keep talking about as my flop of the season. They've spent a lot of money over the last few years. Steven Gerrard isn't convincing me at the moment and they've lost again at Crystal Palace, uh, which puts them in a difficult situation in terms of the pressure now on the boss from the ownership and from a section of the fans as well. We'll look at the table at the end of this stream and we'll break that down in a little bit more detail. Everton still um, not vintage Everton by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, they were held by Nottingham Forest, newly promoted Nottingham Forest, who will be happy with a point, you'd have to say, um, away at Goodison Park. There you go, 1-1 one, one there. Everton still kind of struggling with the speculation around Anthony Gordon. I, I do expect Everton to do more business in terms of bringing players in between now and when the window closes. But obviously this Anthony Gordon thing is it's dragging on. Everton have rejected a bid from Chelsea for the player, which I think is a crazy bid. I cannot for the life of me understand or work out what it is that people see in this kid that makes them want to part with upwards of £40 million at this stage in his career. Am I saying he's not talented? Absolutely not. Maybe he is. Maybe he's got lots of potential. But I just don't see it. I haven't seen enough of him and I don't understand how Chelsea or anybody, any big club looking to spend big on this kid could A, guarantee him the game time, which is why it makes no sense in terms of a move for him other than for financial reasons. And also why they would want to part with that sort of money when they could go out and find somebody who I believe is at a higher level currently and will impact and help their team a lot more. Don't get it. I just don't get it. Fulham uh, won the uh, West London derby between themselves and Brentford with a last gasp Alexander Mitrovic winner. That was a cracking game. Fulham went 2-0 up. Brentford uh, come back to 2-2. Um, uh, and then, of course, Fulham stole it right at the end with that brilliant Mitrovic header. It was vintage Alexandra Mitrovic, wasn't it? Ball delivered in from uh, the right-hand side. He pops up at the far post, goes up into aerial battle with a player that really doesn't want to be isolated by Alexander Mitrovic. And the Serbian heads it into the far corner. He started the season brilliantly, really, really well. And, um, and I'm delighted for him because 
over the years with Fulham being a bit of a yo-yo club, people have questioned whether Mitrovic can do it in the Premier League. He certainly wasn't as effective as they'd have hoped the last time they were up, but he did have injury problems as well, if I'm not mistaken, during that period. But he looks fresh, he looks fit, he looks strong, he looks powerful, and he looks as though he's going to play a key role if Fulham are going to survive. But there's some other players they've brought in as well that look really, really good. I mean, Paulinha in the midfield for me looks a real good get. And, um, you know, with Marco Silva, a manager that I've always rated quite highly, my opinion might be starting to change on Fulham. I did have them down as one of my bottom three going into the campaign, which you can understand given their record. But Marco Silva, I think, is doing a good job there. I think he's built a good squad, a good side. And again, much like many teams, it will be down to whether they can keep their key players fit and whether they can keep them firing at the same level throughout the duration, or at least for most of the campaign. Their opponents at the weekend, Brentford, were a good uh, a good example of that. A club that started last season really, really well and then tailed off for a really long period. But because they did well at the start and because they got it together again towards the end, it was it was possible for them to survive because they'd sort of made up or almost put themselves in a position where they could afford to drop off just in comparison to some of the sides around them um, and still be fine because of the previous good work they did. Momentum is key. At the start of the season, it's so, so important. And credit to Fulham because I think they've started the season really, really well. Uh, drew, uh, drew with Wolves, I think, last weekend. Got that draw against Liverpool um, on the opening weekend, which was a very commendable result and performance. And then beaten Brentford here. So they've got five points from a possible nine, which is pretty good going. Leicester City were beaten at home by Southampton. Southampton are a funny old team, aren't they? One week they're great. One week they're awful. They tend to go through really good periods and then they tend to go through dreadful periods. And if I'm not mistaken, Leicester once put nine past this Southampton side. So to go to Leicester and uh, not allow that to get the better of them. And I guess that's partly because it's a different team in a lot of ways. But to go there and to come, um, I think, from behind and uh, and win that game. I'll just double check that. I'm pretty sure they came from behind. Um, yeah, James Madison put Leicester in front after 54 minutes and then Che Adams uh, scored on the 68th minute, followed by the 84th. But to go to Leicester, I know Leicester are in a difficult spot at the moment and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but to go there was was great uh, for Southampton and to come away with the result that they did is certainly commendable. As for Leicester City, however, there are serious problems there. I mentioned to you a little bit earlier on that I'm seeing some whispers um, and, and rumours that Brendan Rodgers could be out on his ass by the end of uh, the week, maybe. I don't know. I don't know how true that is, but it's clear as day when you watch his press conferences, his post-match interviews, that he's not entirely satisfied with the situation at Leicester right now in terms of the business they haven't done and in terms of the business they might do, but more so around outgoings. He alluded to the fact that both Wesley Fofana and Yuri Tielemans at the weekend were not quite in the right frame of mind to take part in the game. Yuri Tielemans was relegated to the substitutes bench and Wesley Fofana was omitted from the squad completely. He was sitting watching the game in the stands. He still wants that move to Chelsea. Chelsea is still working on that and would like that to happen. But the fee that Leicester City are demanding is big, is crazy, you could say. And the, the word from Wesley Fofana's camp is that he's being priced out of a move and they're not entirely happy with that. I understand Leicester wanting to protect themselves 
from losing an asset for a, a really shit fee or a fee that they don't believe reflects his true value. But I do think to set the bar at £80 million for Wesley Fofana is a little bit crazy. But then somebody reminded me today that they sold Harry Maguire for that. And I can tell you this, Wesley Fofana has got the potential to be a much better centre-half than Harry Maguire. In fact, he's already a better centre-half than Harry Maguire. So no wonder Leicester City is sticking to their guns. But going to be interesting to see what happens there. Are Arsenal going to go in and get Yuri Tielemans? We talked about this a little bit earlier on on the stream that we did around Pedro Neto and that news. And the truth is, I don't know. You know, I've said this all summer. Are Arsenal going to do it? Well, if they want to do it, they know what they need to do. Um, it's a relatively easy deal to do in terms of, you know, the fact that we kind of have an idea of what Leicester are looking for, which is around about £30 million. So why don't we just go and do it? But there was always a, a, a suspicion, I guess, that Arsenal may wait till late in the window and then try their luck with a bid that Leicester might have described as maybe derisory earlier on in the window. And if Tielemans is pushing like we think he might be, then maybe this is a possibility. But again, there's that thing in the back of my mind. If Arsenal haven't done it yet, maybe they're not as interested as we're being led to believe. That is one to definitely keep your eye on, though. The situation at Leicester is not great. And uh, Brendan Rodgers is uh, in that point in his kind of managerial cycle that he seems to reach with a lot of clubs where it's, okay, I need to rebuild. I need to reinvent a little bit. I need to refresh. Not really sure how I'm going to do that. Although in this particular case and on this particular instance, I do have a bit more sympathy for him because I feel like Leicester as a football club have not been as supportive as they need to be. I don't know if it's because they can't be financially. I don't know enough about their their ongoings there to be able to pass comment on that. And I'd love to hear from a Leicester fan um, on that situation. But yeah, ultimately, it's not looking good there. And then, of course, the final game on Saturday was Arsenal's 3-0 victory at Bournemouth, which we discussed at length. And if you want to go back and listen to the post-match podcast, you can do so as well on the channel. Moving on to Sunday, Leeds United with a 3-0 victory over Chelsea. What a result that was for Jesse Marsh's side. And I loved that scene where he threw the bottle down on the ground in celebration. There was a little bit of needle going into this one because, A, it's one of those old traditional Premier League fixtures that has that. There have been issues between the fans in the past um, that kind of add an, a, another level of spice to that. And, and of course, um, you know, that has to be considered as well. But Jesse March was unhappy in the build-up to the game at the fact that Thomas Tuchel might be allowed to be on the touchline, given what happened between he and Antonio Conte in what's being dubbed as the Battle of the Bridge 2 just last weekend. Um, and, and that, I think, added a bit of spark to it. And I think that Thomas Tuchel was visibly agitated after this one in his press conference, in his interview. And, and we saw that against Spurs the week before as well. He rubbished suggestions that it was because of attitude that his side were beaten or because they didn't run as much as Leeds United. Um, he leapt to the defence of his players. He said that we had the players that we wanted, etc., etc., available to us. So he wasn't making any excuses, but he didn't really buy um, the narratives that were coming uh, that were coming towards um, his side off the back of that game. And, but you got to give credit to Leeds United. 
You know, Edward Mendy gifts him the first goal. He gets caught on the ball. And you just know that's going to happen to Aaron Ramsdale at some point this season, the way he takes risks in those kind of situations. But the ball was nicked by Aronson, who I think has been a really good buy, by the way. He brings so much energy to the side, uh, so much enthusiasm, um, aggression. I, I really, really enjoyed uh, watching Aronson so far in Leeds United colours. So he obviously got the first goal, of course. Um, by robbing Edouard Mendy, who just dwelled on the ball a little bit too long. And then just four minutes later, they doubled the lead with a good delivery in from Leeds's left-hand side, met by Rodrigo, come across the near post, brilliant header in towards the far corner. He's really started the season well as well, hasn't he? He's been a, a really good signing for Leeds that maybe was a little bit overshadowed by Rafinha, who has had his injury problems, which has meant he hasn't been as consistent in terms of playing time as he might have liked. And I think, you know, that is um, that is something that the leads are going to have to manage. They're going to have to manage his fitness to the point where they can get the maximum out of him. But clearly he's much more in favour under Jesse Marsh than he was under Marcelo Bielsa towards the end of his tenure as well. And I think that really benefits uh, Leeds that they're getting the maximum out of him because he's a really good player on his day. And then, of course, Jack Harrison's goal, which I thought might have been offside um, when I looked at it. At first glance, it wasn't in the end. The VAR did check, but that just put the icing on the cake uh, with just over 20 minutes to go and really did end it as a contest. Add to that as well, Khalidu Koulibaly was sent off for Chelsea. It was an afternoon to forget for Thomas Tuchel's side. There's no question about that. But in East London, things weren't too good either. West Ham United were beaten by Brighton and Hove Albion on their own patch. Now, West Ham have had a really poor start to the season. And interestingly as well, if you guys remember, um, I said leading up to the season on the 19-min gas tank, that I'd looked at them, I'd watched them, and I wasn't sure that they were going to be ready for the start of their campaign. I covered two of their pre-season friendlies for BBC Radio London. I went to Reading, I went to Luton, and they didn't impress me one bit. They looked off the pace. They looked like they needed signings badly. And they've brought signings in, some of whom haven't really had an impact yet. And David Moyes has made no secret about that in his assessment and analysis of what went wrong following that Brighton game. But also, they've suffered some injuries, particularly in the centre-back area, that have really disrupted them. There's no getting away from that. And I do have some sympathy for them because we started our season poorly last time out because we had players unavailable. I know exactly what it feels like. But something tells me that West Ham, looking at what I'm seeing at the moment, are not going to be in and around the top six again. I'm not going to be in and around the top seven and so they are one side that at the moment I'm not massively fussed or worried about. But again, there are still 10 days remaining in the transfer window. Can they get more through the door? And can they get players back to fitness? Players that are key, players that are important in their system and important to the way they play. But credit to Brighton because, you know, people again, at the start of every season, they say Brighton might go down. You know, Brighton don't look very good. They haven't done a lot in terms of signings. They've let players go, Kukurea and, of course, Bisuma both leaving this summer. But Brighton continue to prove people wrong. They replace these players so well. They bring in signings out of nowhere that nobody's even talking about, nobody's even thinking about, nobody even has on their radar. It's a credit to their recruitment team and Graham Potter for identifying these players because they've come in and they've done superb. 
They've got a great system. They've got a really fluid way of playing. And whoever plays in that system seems to be able to do it to good effect. Leandro Trossard got a goal at the weekend. Very, very good player. Danny Welbeck is leading the line excellently as well for West Ham. Obviously, Danny Welbeck is Danny Welbeck. And there's a good chance that he will miss a fair few games for injury as well. And so Brighton need an alternative. And that's the one area that I look at and think, maybe you're going to have to do something between now and when the window closes. Because, of course, Neil Mopai is being linked with a move away. So we'll have to see how that pans out. But all of the talk has been around how bad it was for West Ham United. But Brighton deserve a lot of credit and a lot of praise for that display. No question about that. Moving on to the final game on Sunday. And what a game it was. Super Sunday or what? We had to wait for this one, but it was worth the wait. There's no question about it. Newcastle United 3, Manchester City 3. There was some superb goals. There was some brilliant football on show. The atmosphere at St. James's Park was electric, as it always is. And this made for brilliant viewing. Manchester City going out there, throwing punches, swinging, but Newcastle showing that they can give as good as they get. And, um, you know, I think Newcastle, having gone 3-1 up, will be a little bit disappointed that they didn't win the game. In fact, maybe very disappointed that they didn't win the game. But when they look back at this at the end of the season and, and the kind of emotion dies down a little bit, they'll be able to say that was a very good result against a very good City side. And they showed a lot of resilience and a lot of fight, um, even if they did see a two-goal lead sort of vanish. City took the lead really early in this one through Ilkay Gundogan, who just seems to score so many goals. But Miguel Almiron's goal which was wrongly flagged for offside initially. It was such a bad decision. The only thing I can think of is that the linesman thought the ball got a touch on its way to Almiron, which would have made him offside. Um, but he was clearly on. He put the ball in the back of the net. Callum Wilson uh, then scored 11 minutes later to make it 2-1 with a lovely touch inside and then finish with the outside of the boot back across the goal. Uh, brilliant from him. But again, as I've said with a lot of players, can Newcastle United keep Callum Wilson fit? And then right at the start of the second half, Kieran Trippier with a sublime free kick, the type that we all know he's capable of, put Newcastle into that 3-1 lead. But back came Manchester City, the machine. And within the period of four minutes, they managed to score two goals, one through Erling Haaland, who certainly isn't going to struggle in this division, as some people are suggesting. And of course, Bernardo Silva, got that equaliser. Brilliant game, brilliant spectacle, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, that rounds up the weekend's action. And of course, there's a big game tonight. If you're listening to this in podcast format, it would have already taken place. A relegation six-pointer between Manchester United and Liverpool. We will speak about that game a little bit on the next edition of the podcast, if you're interested. But that is my roundup of the Premier League weekend. Lots of great action, lots of great goals, lots of great games. But most importantly, Mikel Arteta's Arsenal sit top of the pile. We'll be back tomorrow with... Back to more, back tomorrow with some more Chronicles of Aguna content. Make sure you leave a like on the video if you haven't done so already. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel if you're new. Check out our update on Pedro Neto, which was earlier today, uh, the last video, last uh, podcast on the channel. We'll be back soon with more. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon.